Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22. As we continue our study through the book of Joshua, we've got just a few sermons left, and we'll be looking at Joshua 22 in its entirety this morning. Just a few days before I got married, my brother took me aside and offered me some marriage advice. He had uh, just gotten married a few years before I had. He and I had a lot of similarities. We were both uh, married a little bit later in life. We had both been single for a while. We had both lived alone. We both didn't mind being single, but we knew that this was going to be a massive shift to get married. And he just said, listen, I, I've, been, I've been through this for a few years. The Lord has brought me to a verse, and I want to give it to you. It's really helped me, but you've got to promise that you won't tell this to your wife. And you have to certainly promise you won't tell it to my wife. Okay? He said, the Lord brought me recently to to Proverbs 14.4 where it says this. Where there are no oxen, the stable is clean. But much increase comes from the strength of an ox. He said, here's the deal. Life is simpler alone. It's just less complicated alone. But if God is calling you to be married, if he has brought you a wife then this is a good thing and you need it and you must embrace it because much increase will come from it. But I'm just telling you, it's it's a little more complicated than living a single life. That makes perfect sense. But why can't I tell that to my wife or tell it to your wife? He said, because in this analogy, your wife is the ox. That makes sense that I shouldn't share that. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've thought about Proverbs 14.4. Just what a great analogy it is for life in general, and particularly for those who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, is that life is simpler alone. It's less complicated. There's less potential for drama, even less potential for pain and suffering. And there is a tendency in all of us to want to withdraw, to be in isolation, to live alone, even if we're around people, the desire to just be closed in, to protect ourselves from what might be hurtful or more painful. But the reality is, is that there is much increase that comes from our relationship with other people, that we need people in our lives. And I don't know exactly why, but God has so created us. Listen, this is a part of the creative order of God. God has so created us that it's not just that it's not good for Adam to be alone, it's not good for any of us to be alone. That all of us need relationships with other people. Whether we're married, single, divorced, widowed, all of us need the relationships of other people. Because God has created us in such a way that we cannot be the people that God has called us to be. We will never accomplish the work God has for us to accomplish without the ministry of other people in our lives. God's plan has always revolved around a people. I mean, that's the story of the Old Testament. God called Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, and it's through this people that I'm going to bless and bless the rest of the nations. And that's the story of the Old Testament. And then you turn to the New Testament, and God's plan is the same. He saves individuals. And you know what he does? After he saves them, he calls them to get baptized. And you know the next act of obedience? Get plugged in to a local church. Because God's plan has always been to save individuals, to gather them into a community of believers where he might accomplish his purposes through that group and he might accomplish his purposes in every individual person. The church is is a body. It's 
It's a place in which every member matters. It's a place in which we realize that by ourselves we're not that great. But when you put us in the context of a bunch of other gifted believers, it is amazing what we can accomplish. The church is a family. Dysfunctional, yes, but a family nonetheless. That we are a a family and our relationship to one another matters. The health of our relationship to one another matters. We are a people. Second, as 1 Peter chapter 2 reminds us, there is this inseparable essential union. It's rooted and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you choose by faith to trust and follow Jesus, and you give your life to him, your sins are forgiven, and God not only brings you into a union with him, he brings you into a supernatural union with each other. We've been brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason, listen, that this should matter to you, the reason that church should be a big part of your life is because God's purposes have always been that he will work in you and he will work through you through the context of the local church. It will never happen. You will never see the fullness of everything God has for you when you're living in isolation. Because the reality is, is that God has always chosen to fulfill his purposes through a united people. And that is the point of Joshua 22. That God has always fulfilled his purposes through a united people. Now let me give you a little background before we jump into Joshua 22. You might remember in the book of Numbers chapter 32, when the people of God are preparing to go over the Jordan to inherit the promised land, there were two and a half tribes the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, that were looking around at the land and realized that they're cattle people, and this land was great for cattle. And so they went to Moses and said, Moses, listen, I know that all of us are supposed to go over to the promised land, but would you mind if our families stay? Now, Moses said, that's fine. You can stay here. This can be your inheritance, but... When we go to the other side of the Jordan and we're fighting to take the land and we have to destroy all of these nations as a sign of the wrath of God poured out upon their unbelief, then you must come with us and help your brothers as they go to take the land. And they all agreed. So that's why in Joshua 1, the Lord comes to Joshua and says, be strong and courageous. You're now, this generation is going to lead the people into the land. Joshua then leaves. He gets the commanders ready. And then he goes to these two and a half tribes. And he says, listen, we know that you're already home. We also know that you have committed to go with us to the other side of the Jordan River and help us take that land. And that's exactly what's happened in Joshua 22. After seven years of fighting, after seven years of war, the battle is over and it's time for all of those men who belonged on the other side but have come to help the rest of the tribes, it's time for them to go home. It's time for them to go back to their wives and their children and their families and their work. It's a very emotional moment because they have been a united people. They've been fighting together and working together. They experienced all kinds of victories together, even some tragedies together, and it's time for them to go back. But even more than an emotional moment, it's it's a really critical moment because the question is, is when these two and a half tribes go over to the other side, will they still remain a united people? Because even though the battle is over, the mission has just begun. Listen, the whole reason God got them into the land is that so through them, they might be a blessing to the rest of the nations. They're just getting started. It's not that now that they're in the land, oh great, we're done. We've accomplished what God, no, no, no. God says, I'm bringing you here so that the nations might come to know me through you. 
There's work to be done. And the question is, will they stay united? And that's really the theme of, of, of Joshua 22, this, this desire for unity and faithfulness of the people of God to accomplish his purposes. But I tell you something, Joshua 22 is a crazy story. So at the very beginning there, it says that he gathers these three tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. He then says to them in verse 2, you've kept all the Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you. You've obeyed my voice. You've done what I commanded. You've not forsaken your brothers. You've, uh, down to this day, have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord. So you did well. You did what you were asked to do. And then Joshua begins to exhort them to remain careful, to walk with the Lord, to be faithful. He's pleading with them. And we'll look at this in more detail in a minute, all throughout verse 6. In verses 7 through 9, he then says to them, listen, we have all taken this spoil from the nations that we conquered. Take some of that back with you because we're family, we're, we're brothers, so this belongs to you. So they go and gather up their stuff. And then in verse 10, they go back. They go to the east side of the Jordan, back to the place in which was their inheritance, these two and a half tribes. Now, it seems like everything is great, but all of a sudden, a very strange thing happens. They've just committed to be faithful to walk with the Lord. And here are these nine and a half tribes that have just watched two and a half tribes go to the other side. And all of a sudden they see right on the side of the Jordan River something being built. It tells us in verse 10 that they go and immediately build an altar by the Jordan of imposing size. So some massive type of altar is seen. Now in the nine and a half tribes they immediately think this is some kind of altar to a false god. They have done this to offer sacrifices to something that is not the Lord. They have forgotten about the tabernacle. They've created their own high place, and now they're going to worship. Now, what happens next is incredible. The nine and a half tribes see this altar being built, and look at what it says in verse 12. When the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. They just loved on them, blessed them, praise God, you've done great. Right here in verse 12, now the entire rest of the nation, nine and a half tribes, are about to wage war and annihilate all of them. Thankfully, they send a little delegation of ten first to figure out what's going on. So this little delegation of ten goes to them and says, listen, you've rebelled against the Lord. Why are you doing this? You're going to bring a curse on yourself and on all the rest of us. We're all going to receive the anger and the wrath of God because you're not walking with the Lord. To which they respond, no, 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 you, you don't understand. And this is in verses 21 and following. No, here's why we did this. We were afraid that someday your children were going to look at our children on the other side of the Jordan and say, listen, you don't belong to us. You're not a part of the people of God. And so we built an altar so that our children would be reminded that we're united with you, that we are a part of the people of God. Because this, this Jordan River did seem like a natural barrier. And so out of concern and love for their children, they built this altar to remind them that we too are a part of the greater people of God. Their goal in this was, was the unity of the people. To which the 10 delegates who had come that were about to annihilate them said, our bad, sorry about that, uh, we're okay. We bless you, we love you, everybody go, we're all good. So here is Joshua 22 in a nutshell. You guys are so great, man. We love you. Thank you so much for coming with us and being obedient to the Lord. We really couldn't have done it without you. We love you so much, and we're, we hate to see you go. Like, this is hard. We love you so much. God bless you. Go in peace and walk with the Lord. We're going to destroy you. 
Like, we're going to annihilate you completely. Like, we're going to go in and take down every man, woman, boy, and girl, every dog, every cow. We're going to totally destroy you. Oh, okay, our bad. Love you guys. You guys are awesome. Go back over. Everything's good. See you at the Passover. Like, that's Joshua 22. It's like, we love you. We hate you. We love you. It just seems like a strange story right here at the end of the book of Joshua. The entire story exists to remind us of that principle. That God has always intended to accomplish his purposes through a united people. And when one group saw the rest of the group going away from the Lord and no longer being a united people, they believed that that unity was worth fighting for. Now the reason it matters to us this morning, generations, thousands of years later, is because God's plan is still exactly the same. He's going to work in you and he's going to work through you through a united people of God. It is impossible for you to be the person God wants you to be without the context of other believers. And this story really causes us to ask a question, Lord, how can we remain a united people of God? How do we create a culture of unity that ensures that God's purposes are accomplished? Because if that's God's plan, we, we wanna be in on that. Like we wanna make sure that here at Prince there is a culture of unity. And we want to make sure you understand that your involvement in this matters for your own personal growth. How can we create a culture of unity that ensures God accomplishes his purposes in you and through you for his glory? And I believe this gives us a few ways that we do that. I encourage you to write these down. The first one is this. If we want to create a culture of unity through which God blesses and uses, we must, first of all, affirm others. Affirm others. I get that from verses two and three. We must create a culture in which we affirm others. So Joshua gathers them aside and he says this. You've kept all the Moses, the servant of your Lord, commanded you. You've obeyed my voice and all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but you've been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. So in Joshua 1, he said to them, we, you have to come with us. You've got to give your all. You've got to completely commit yourself to making sure that we finish what God intends. Even though this is not your land, you've got to help us take this land. And listen, church, they did it. They were faithful for seven years, leaving their family, not going back. Many of them lost their lives as a result of this. But they walked with the Lord. They were valiant. They were sacrificial seven years away from home. And now, at the end of all of that, Joshua doesn't look at them and say, well, I don't need to thank you. This was your duty. Like you had to do this, you were supposed to do this. No, Joshua stops at the very beginning and he, he blesses them. He, he speaks life into them, he encourages them. And I'm just reminded from this that, that people always thrive in an atmosphere of, of affirmation. That it is true what Proverbs 16, 24 says, that gracious words are like a honeycomb, they bring sweetness to the soul. All of us long, do you know God has put inside of us, every one of us long to hear the words that the son heard from the father. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You're doing good. I love you. I'm thankful for you and you're mine. We all long for that. And we not only hear it from every page of the Bible speaking to us, but we need it from each other. We need affirmation. And the way in which we create a culture of sustained unity is we affirm each other and we bless each other. I gotta say, when I looked at this this week, Affirmation is not the primary point of Joshua 22. It's there, but it's not the primary point. But the reason I'm making it one of the points of this text is not just because it's here, but because this is the honest truth. Last Sunday, just coming home from our services, reflecting on what God is doing, the Lord convicted me 
that I don't affirm you enough, that I don't thank you enough. I mean, what's happened over the last few months has been incredible here. I have, for all of 2019, I've asked you to give more. I've asked you to serve more. I've asked you to do more. I mean, goodness, I moved all the seats last week. That's a big deal. Like, none of you said anything about it, but I watched some of you. We blew your minds when you came in here last week and had no idea where to sit. You know who you are. This was a big deal. And in every one of these steps, in every one of these steps, every time I ask you to give, every time I ask you to sacrifice, every time I ask you to serve, you have done it so well with a generous spirit and a godly attitude and just a desire to do what is right. And you deserve affirmation and thanks for that. To God be the glory, but none of this happens if you're not obedient and receiving from the Lord and walking in that. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so thankful to be in a church that is following the leadership of the Lord and doing it with a right attitude. Let me tell you something. Every home and every family and every church needs to have a culture of affirmation. Do do we have rebuke? Absolutely. Do we have hard conversations? Absolutely. Do we have discipline? Absolutely. But all of that should be done in the atmosphere of affirmation when it is clear that the reason we're giving those rebukes and the reason we're giving that discipline is because we love each other. There's a spirit of affirmation. God creates a united culture through affirming other people. That's the first one. The second one is this. We want to create a culture of unity. We not only affirm others, write this down, we pursue Jesus. We pursue Jesus. I get that from verse 5. In verse 5, after affirming them, he really exhorts them in which he says, be careful to observe the commandment of the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. There is almost no command given more clearly in the Old Testament than be careful, be careful, be watchful, be vigilant about your own personal life. Continue paying attention to your spiritual life. If you're not always paying attention, you will drift away, Hebrews chapter 2. Be careful, watch. Now, there is one command in verse 5. It's be careful. Now, if you mark in your Bibles or write in your Bibles, you're going to want to notice this. Because what happens is there's one command and then what we call five infinitives, meaning there are five ways in which you obey that command. Five ways in which this command be possible. Because he says, be careful. And then look at these words. Circle them. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments. Cling to him and serve him. How can you be a careful Christian? How can you pay, pay close attention to your spiritual life? Here's the ways. Love, walk, keep, cling, and serve. He says pay attention by loving the Lord. I love that he starts with that because he reminds us that our relationship with Jesus is exactly that. Listen, this is a relationship. This is not just about duty. This is not just about commands. God has called you into a relationship in which he loves you and wants you to love him, in which he's saying your intimacy matters, your relationship with Jesus matters. Cultivate your affection for Jesus. He says love, and then he says walk. So follow Jesus, let him lead, make progress, allow Jesus to take the lead in your life. Look to him and make sure every day you're walking in his way. He then says keep his commandments, be obedient. If God says it, you do it. I was meditating on this this morning as I was praying over our time together and I was reminded 
that nothing I do this morning from this book matters. None of my sermon matters. None of my exhortation matters. Unless at the end of it, you say, I have heard it and I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk into it. Every time God speaks, he demands a response. This time means nothing unless we respond to it. So he's, listen, grow in your relationship. Walk with the Lord, but keep his commandments. Look what he says next. He says, and cling to him. What a great word picture. Hold on to Jesus and don't let go. Don't let the difficulty, the temptation, the wind and the wave of all kinds of false doctrine or the lies of the enemy pull you away from Jesus. Grab on to Jesus and don't let go, he says. Cling on to him. And then he says, and, and serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Be active, be engaged, participate, be doing something. See, the reason he is pleading with them to pursue the Lord is because he knows, listen, that every, in a, in a body, in a family, every individual person's pursuit of Jesus affects the rest of the people's ability to do what's right. Do you know that? Like I have learned from family hikes, you only go as fast as the slowest person. You understand this? You only go as far as the person that wants to not go far goes. Like you don't leave them, you, you, that's as far as you can go no matter what you say. And that is exactly the way that works in the church. Do you know that, that your pursuit of Jesus Christ matters? Because it's affecting the rest of us. Our individual pursuit determines our corporate progress. So he says, listen, as the people of God, let's affirm each other and let's pursue Jesus together. That's the way we create a culture of unity. If we're all pursuing the same person and following the same person, listen, we're gonna be going in the same direction. Affirm others, pursue Jesus. The third one is this. If we want to create a culture of unity among us that accomplishes God's purposes, we also must confront sin. Confront sin. Affirm others, pursue Jesus, confront sin. Now I have to tell you, there was so much love and affection and joy in the first few verses. Uh, I, I found it hard to grasp what was happening in verse 12 when all of a sudden the entire assembly is ready to wage war on these two and a half tribes. My question was this, well, was this an overreaction? I mean, were they just a little too zealous here? And then after thinking about it and praying about it and looking at the rest of scripture, my answer is absolutely not. Well, they absolutely had the right response. They understood that the sin of this group of people would affect the rest of the people. And they give two examples. Look, look at this. When, when these 10 delegates come, they say, listen, if you, if you leave the faith and you sin, it's rebellion against the Lord and it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt all of us. And then look what it says in verse 17. Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor? Numbers 25. God tells the people, don't worship foreign gods and don't marry foreign women. Why? Because if you marry foreign women, you're going to worship foreign gods and you're going to lose my blessing. But they do it. They marry foreign women. They worship foreign gods. It leads their heart astray. So the Lord is angry with the people. There's this one story where an Israelite comes in with a foreign wife and the significance of him coming in in front of the congregation is he's not bothered by his sin. He doesn't care. He's openly sinning in front of everyone. He's just openly sinning. One zealous soldier named Phineas took a sword and took them out and killed the man and the wife to remind us that you don't walk in open rebellion against the Lord and think that it doesn't have consequences. Sin matters. 
As a result of their sin, a plague was sent by the Lord and 24,000 people died because of the disobedience of a few. Look at verse 20. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? Do you remember when we studied this earlier in Joshua? When one man was disobedient to the Lord and as a result of his sin, 26 people died and the nation was humiliated. They had learned some lessons along the way and one of the lessons they learned is this. Your sin is never just your problem. Can you hear me for a minute? Your sin is never just your problem. There are always rippling effects of sin. Some very visible, some not very visible. I could talk to you all day about the subtle effects of your hidden sin. Let's just think about a father that chooses not to walk with Jesus. And if he's a believer, yet he's choosing to walk in sin, he doesn't like himself, he's filled with guilt, he's filled with condemnation, and you know what's gonna come out of him toward his family? All of that guilt and all of that condemnation and all of this sense of lack of self-worth. And you can hide it all you want, but your hidden sin is going to have a subtle effect on all of those around you. That the reason we have so many people walking in open sin is because there just doesn't seem to be any fear of God anymore. Any recognition that your sin hurts the rest of the congregation. We are a people. We are a body. We are a family. Your sin matters. Let me just tell you something. This is going to be as a surprise to many of you. I know I'm your pastor. Some of you are going to be shocked by this. I've never said this this openly before, but let me just say it. All right, you ready? I sin. I know it's hard. I just burst my wife's bubble 15 years. She's never, it's the first time. I'm a sinner, all right? Like daily, I sin. Let me tell you what keeps me from moral failure. What keeps me from being vigilant about my life of purity is this, is because I know if I do something stupid and fail to walk with Jesus and walk in immorality, it's gonna hurt a lot of people. And it's gonna be another reason for an unbeliever to say, well, Prince, it's just like every other church. You know, that pastor was saying this, but he was living this. I think about all the people that would be hurt and all the people would be affected by my stupid decisions. And it is the fear of that, my desire not to hurt you or my family, that often keeps me walking in the way I should. And I don't wanna grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but I really don't wanna hurt you. And I know how my sin can hurt you. What Joshua was saying is he was saying, listen, this, this sin, this potential sin matters and we have to confront it and deal with it. And if we're gonna remain a united culture, then we have to be a people who not only confront our own sin, but we confront the sin of others. Two weeks ago, nine o'clock at night on a Tuesday night, I take another man from the church, we go to a man's house and we knock on his door and ask him to give an account for why he's dealing with his wife the way he is. Why? Because we loved him. Because we loved him. And if we love each other, we have to talk about these things. We have to confront each other and our sins. We have to be humble enough to receive that from each other because everybody's sins affects the rest of the church. We take it seriously. We deal with it. If we want a culture of unity that accomplishes God's purposes, we affirm others, we pursue Jesus, we confront sin. And let me give you the last one. The last one is this. If we want a culture of unity accomplishing God's purposes, we bless children. We bless children. We affirm others, pursue Jesus, confront sin, and we bless children. 
By bless, I mean we empower them, we strengthen them, we encourage them, we teach them. Every one of us invest in the next generation. Eight times in Joshua 22, you have words like children, descendants, or generations. Remember, the entire reason this altar was built is in verse 24. Look at it. No, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children, those nine and a half tribes on the west side, might say to our children, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, and you people of Reuben and you people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, well, let's build an altar, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifices, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after that we do to perform the service of the Lord in the presence of the burnt offering and sacrifices and peace offering so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. One reason for the altar, as a witness to the children to make sure they understood that they were part of the people of God. You just read all of God's preparation for the people to enter in the land. You see over and over, starting in Deuteronomy 6, the commands that when you get into the land, make sure you teach your children. Teach them diligently when you sit and walk and lie down and rise. You write it on the doorpost of your house. You put it in the tablets of their heart. You walk with the Lord and you invest in children. There are few things that matter more in the life of the church than blessing the children. The entire motive for this was their concern that the next generation might not follow the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, that's a couple of months ago now, I, I put together a little video I recorded and I, I sent it in our weekly email. And it was really just to parents of those with young children, but I think a lot of you watched it because you commented to me about it. But here's, here's what I said in that video. I said, it's been the habit at Prince to have a separate corporate worship service for children. So the adults go to this service and children go to this service. And once a month, they would come in here. But what I said in this video is I don't think we need to do that anymore. I think the children need to be in service with us from kindergarten up. And I said, I know it's challenging. I know it's hard. In full disclosure, easy for me to say, I don't sit with my kids during the service. Okay, I know you're thinking it. So it's true. My wife does. But I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. But you know what? If our children are never with us, you know what they don't see? They don't see communion. You know what they don't see? They don't see baptism. They don't see offering. They don't hear you sing. They don't see us raise our hands. They don't see what God is doing in the midst of the body of Christ. We have put them over in a separate location as if they can't handle what's going on in here. I don't preach that long. They can handle this, and they're receiving things and experiencing things. Let me tell you what happened last week. I'm sitting right there in the third row, second service, and I just, I hear this, I sing loud, but I hear this voice over uh, to, to my right shoulder, and I think, what in the world is this? I look over, and, and McKenna, I'm sorry if you're here, McKenna's there, and she's just singing. I mean, she's just singing loud. And then I can't stop looking at her, and she's just kind of doing this a little bit. Like she's just, she's just up there kind of just doing her thing and, and singing and she's raising her hands. And at the, at the greeting time, I go over, I get on my knees and I say, McKenna, I have to tell you something. You have made my day. This is the best part of my day. The greatest thing that has happened right now is hearing you sing and seeing you sing. Because you know what? We need some people like McKenna in this room. We need to see her sing. Some of you desperately need to see the way she moves and you need to start giving a little bit of this. Like, I want to say, McKenna, praise God, go for it. You know why? She's not worried about what you think about her. She's just, she's just loving Jesus. She's enjoying the music. She's free, and we need to see that. 
And she needs to see us doing the same thing. Some of you, maybe not, but most of us, she needs to see us moving and praising the Lord. Like we need each other and bringing them into the worship is a part of a way in which we say we want to bless the children. They're a part of what God is doing in our midst. And I know it can be challenging, but God blesses the church and unites the church that blesses children. Listen, the reality is, is that God wants us to work hard on this unity because it's just impossible to do what God wants us to do without it. And every time I open a text of scripture, every time, every week when I get in my study, what I do is this. The first thing I do is I think, what is the feel of this text? What is the emotion of this text? What's happening in the midst of this text? And what I, what I came up with when I read this text is that this is a text of just, it's just a fiery text. It's a vigilant text. There's a lot of passion in this text. And what that says to us is that our passion for unity must be high. We must be vigilant to fight against self-centeredness. Be vigilant against our desire to be withdrawn and isolated. We must be vigilant with our affirmation. Vigilant with our pursuit of Jesus. Vigilant in our fight against sin. Vigilant in the preparing and loving and teaching of our children. And I'll close with verse 31. Look at this, what it says in verse 31. After the nine and a half tribes discover that the two and a half tribes hadn't done anything wrong, it says this, verse 31. Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Look at that phrase. Now we know the Lord is in our midst. You know why this matters is because there is nothing we want more than the presence of God and this type of unity invites the presence of God. That's Acts 1 and 2. A united people experience the presence of God. This text is a call to action. It's not a call to thinking, it's a call to action. And I don't know what it is that God is stirring in your heart about a need to affirm or to pursue Jesus or to confront your sin or someone else's or to bless the next generation, but it is a call to action. And when we step out in obedience to this, we become the kind of church that God can use and that grows people in the likeness of Christ. Pray that by God's grace it would be true of us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.